With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following show is brought to you in partnership with the Institute of Politics, Policy, and History, Blue Star Strategies, Bright Road Incorporated, Make It Plain Podcast, and RPC Media. campus of the University of the District of Columbia. This is State of Play. Hi, welcome to State of Play. I'm Sharon Pratt, and with me is Karen Tramontano, and joining us later will be the Reverend Mark Thompson. Our topic today, the culture wars, that is, where our school board members in many states, teachers are subject to death threats. Why? Because they want to teach American history. Uh, someone to help us understand that is Dr. Hassan Jeffries. He's an associate professor of history at Ohio State University with a particular focus on civil rights and the black power movement, as well as the host of the podcast, Teaching Hard History. Wonderful to have you with us. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So you've become quite an exemplar in this space. Indeed, you are someone who's helped shape curricula in this space. What motivated you to get into the area of hard history? Well, I grew up in the uh, 1980s in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and New York at the time, you know, it was a, it was a tough place to live. Uh, but as I was transiting on my way from my home to, to, to school, um, I was seeing a city um, that when I was in school, what I was learning wasn't explaining what I was seeing. Some neighborhoods that were rich, some neighborhoods that were poor, and those poor neighborhoods tended to be uh, neighborhoods of color. Uh, and so I looked to history as a way to figure out what I was seeing. And so I went into college and graduate school um, driven to sort of find that out, find those answers, uh, and I just haven't stopped. So has there been any other comparable moment in American history where the battle has been as intense as it is today about teaching history? There are several moments. Uh, certainly, we can go back to the turn of the 20th century when uh, the, the daughters of the Confederacy uh, are, are promoting the, the lost cause, uh, building monuments and sending curriculum into schools. Uh, to, to shape the minds of, of, of Americans. Certainly in the 1960s, uh, there was a big push led by civil rights activists uh, to, to talk about American history in an honest way. Uh, and there was a big pushback against that. And so the cultural wars, as they relate to education that we see today, uh, belong on a continuum. They're really an extension. There's never a time in American history, certainly in the 20th and 21st century, where we have not been battling over telling the truth uh, in our classrooms. So, Professor, um, are, are politics driving this culture war, or do you see 
other other drivers? Well, this I think we have to understand these culture wars from two different perspectives. One, certainly there is a cultural angle to it. I mean, those who are deeply invested, consciously and unconsciously, in the idea of maintaining white supremacy. They just believe in racism, right? This isn't racial insensitivity. This is just racism. And so there's a cultural component to that. But what's really driving this, what started this at least, was politics. Uh, coming out of the Trump administration, this was a way of uh, criticizing diversity, equity, and inclusion training, criticizing critical race theory and what we teach in the classroom uh, was a way to animate uh, those Trump voters uh, who were animated by his racism. And in the aftermath of his loss, uh, we saw um, Republican operatives at the federal, at the national level, as well as state level, using that to, to animate the base, to say, how can we hang on to them? Uh, because we know that racism is the most powerful political organizing tool that America has ever produced, and it's being deployed and has been deployed and is being deployed in this way uh, to keep those uh, millions of Trump voters who came out solely because they believed what Trump was pitching. And do you think the focus on K through 12 is unique? Um, do you think it gives the opposition uh, the best platform? Why are they focused on K through 12? Well, they're focused on K through 12, not because they're concerned about uh, children. Uh, they're concerned about parents, right? Because it's a way to animate uh, these parents. Because who wants their children to be lied to? Which is the great irony, because in, in, in promoting uh, the Disneyfication uh, of history, you're actually lying to our children. But it's a way to say, hey, this is all about protecting children. And then that animates, that energizes um, this base. So I saw one of your TED Talks where you expound upon James Madison, who played such a pivotal role in our Constitution, and how enslaved children's fingerprints are still on the brick at his home. Do you think that that's too tough a medicine for America to swallow? You know, we just watched the trial uh, of a police officer uh, who murdered George Floyd. And we asked a nine-year-old girl uh, who witnessed that murder to testify uh, before that police officer and the nation. Uh, if she can do that and tell the truth there, then we can tell the truth about the foundation of this nation, about slavery and enslavement. It's not too tough a pill to swallow. It is a necessary pill for us to swallow. How do you help teachers uh, impart this type of instruction uh, to young people uh, without putting them at risk because they have been the focal point? I encourage teachers to think strategically about this. The great irony is when you look at most uh, state standards, they're in the standards themselves are entry points for teaching hard history, are entry points for teaching the truth. You don't have to make anything up about the Constitution. If you want to explain the Constitution, you have to talk about race and racism. I encourage teachers to say, look, you don't have to make anything up. All you have to do is look at the state standards uh, and, and what your districts are asking you to do and say, hey, you're telling me to teach this, I have to teach this in an honest way. And also to frame this, right? Be, be, just be careful. Like, you don't have to talk about critical race theory. All you have to do is talk about democracy. Right. All you have to do is talk about citizenship and civics, because that's what this is really all about. You talk about uh, not being worried about repeating history, but continuing it. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we give ourselves too much credit in America uh, for having overcome the problems of the past. And when in reality, you know, discrimination and inequality persist because we haven't stopped doing the things 
that have created inequality in the past. We're continuing to do them now. And so if we study history, then we can not avoid repeating it. We can actually disrupt it. We can disrupt that continuum that still feeds into the present. Well, I have to tell you, Dr. Jeffries, uh, your presentation, your reflections, your insights are very profound and compelling. Uh, and so we really want to thank you for all what you do. And thank you in particular for sharing your insights here on State of Play. Well, thank you for having me. Welcome back to State of Play. We just heard from Professor Hassan Jeffries, who gave us an overview of the culture wars in the United States. Now we're going to dig into what's going on today. And helping us will be Professor Dorinda Cotter Andrews. Professor Andrews is the chair of the Department of Teaching at Michigan State University. She's also a professor of race, culture, and equity. Thank you for joining us, Professor Andrews. Thank you for having me, Karen. Let me jump right in. Can you help us understand what is going on in state legislatures and in school districts? Why are they, are they attacking our teachers? Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, I think what's really happening is critical race theory is being used as a buzzword for any type of education about race and racism in K-12 schools. Teachers have been teaching about racism and other forms of oppression for decades. And um, just in this current political climate and the most recent political climate, there's been this uprising around talking about racial injustice and racial equity in K-12 schools with young people. And so now critical race theory, which is a an analytical framework used in higher education is being used as a buzzword really to say, let's not talk at all about racism with young people or adolescents. What's the impact on our classrooms? What the, what's the impact on our children who are trying to attend school and learn? Yeah, we're seeing you know bills being proposed that would suppress educators' ability to just engage young people in race dialogue in the classroom, um, to not talk about uh, you know, dialogue that says one group is superior over another or does any victim blaming, but really to have young people have critical debate and, and be critical thinkers around issues of racial injustice. And so these bills are being proposed that would um, eliminate that kind of discussion, both about our historical American narrative and our contemporary narrative around race. I think what's happening is this is causing educators to you know, be in fear about what they can say in the classroom in the fall. Um, it's causing principals and other administrators and, and school board um, decision makers to really think about what are they accountable to do if these bills pass in their state. And so it's actually causing more harm for developing the kind of young people we want than it is doing good. It seems more than ironic that during the pandemic, we were praising teachers for all they were doing to help our children, and now we're attacking them. Do you see an exodus from the 
profession? You know, there we, we've been in a season um, where there's exodus from teaching. We have had a teaching gap for, for quite some time now. The pandemic certainly exacerbated. I think we may see some fallout, Karen, but, but this is ongoing. The, the, the ways in which the teaching gap is widening and the ways in which the profession is being attacked for how teachers do their work. Professor Andrews, thank you very much. You've been terrific. And please don't go away. There's more to State of Play. Lindsay Love will be joining us and she's at Ground Zero in Chandler, Arizona. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Welcome back to State of Play, where Karen and I continue the conversation about the culture wars. We have with us now someone who's been in the thick of it, Lindsay Love, the first black woman elected to the school board in Chandler, Arizona, and also the president of the Black Alliance of the School Board Association. Wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So I gathered you weren't born in Chandler. So can you explain how is it that you found yourself in Chandler, Arizona, and why is it that you decided to run for the school board? Certainly. I came to Chandler by way of my parents. My dad worked as an engineer with IBM. We actually didn't start out in Chandler. We started out in Ahwatukee, which was a completely different district, Kyrene. And then I moved from Kyrene in about the eighth grade to the Chandler Unified School District and went to middle school and high school and graduated within the district, which was one of my motivations to run. I also had my nieces and nephews and my little niece who was about to start in the district. And my niece and nephew were having some challenges as other black children were at the time. There were some high profile events that were happening in the district and protests from Black Mothers Forum and other groups that had kind of converged on the school district to ask them to do better about the racism in the community. We are a growing city with a lot of the IT businesses booming and our families are becoming more diverse. But with that diversity, the district, I don't think had a plan to address the issues of equity. So there was a black man on the board, but they did not have a black woman on the board. And with school boards traditionally out here, people tend to walk on because they're not competitive races. And I wanted to get on and make a difference with my community and make sure that we were being heard because we weren't at the time. So what constituencies kind of supported you? I mean, I gather there was a shift in the demographics that helped propel you, or is that not correct? Um, there was a shift in the demographics. So I had a lot of like Democrats support me, of course. I canvassed with our legislative candidate, Jennifer Pollack, at the time, who was super helpful. I also got several endorsements from Arizona List, Run for Something, um, and a few other endorsements, um, the secular community, because I also believe in science and I believe in comprehensive age-appropriate sex education. And so people who really felt that I was that I was speaking to their issues really showed up to support me. I actually was not endorsed by the teachers union at the time. We had to learn to love each other and work with each other at the time, um, especially when I got on. But I had a number of teachers who came out and supported me because they really liked my mission. They loved that I was a social worker and we were also dealing with an increase in suicides in the East Valley. 
and they wanted a social worker on the board as well. So tell us about uh, the most recent eruptions in Chandler. In Chandler, we've been dealing with this since about 2019, actually. So the end of my first term, we had groups, um, one called the Purple for Parents, which was an offshoot of the Patriot Party, which we know is a hate group, showing up to our meetings and protesting the equity program that our Black mothers had fought for. And with that, at the end of 2019, they decided to protest me. I was the only Black woman on the board. I supported comprehensive age-appropriate sex education. And my sister also serves as the board chair for Planned Parenthood. So I was the easiest target for them. And they asked me to step down. There was a number of harassing situations where I was being harassed and stalked online by this group. And it started out like that. It actually started out with equity and sex ed, which is what they were coming to protest. And it's kind of grown, especially since the pandemic. As you know, school boards across the nation have had to determine if we were going to go back with masks, if we were even going to go back and open. And my votes were to, if we were going to return, have children wear masks. And I also voted to delay the start of our school year, which did not happen by any stretch of the imagination. We did all agree on masks. And we had several parents who were disagreeing with those decisions. And I became the target of that, especially since I was in a press conference supporting board members' decisions to shut down schools. Um, Our numbers have been way up. And we are actually increasing again. And our governor actually just last week signed it into law that school boards can't make those decisions regarding masking and regarding shutting down schools, which is scary for a district like myself, where we're starting in eight days and we're seeing an increase in cases and this Delta variant is coming along. Out of that, the community lost trust with our board. And that kind of turned into this critical race theory thing that we're we're seeing across the nation. And it was, how dare you put masks on our children? And also this critical race theory stuff has to end, which was very confusing for us because we're not actually doing critical race theory, we're doing equity programs, which is something completely separate. But the way that critical race theory has been reframed by these groups, everything that we focus on in equity, including like social emotional learning and culturally responsive teaching has been targeted and is now being signed into law that we can't do that anymore. You've now outlined, you've been the targets for the last several years of a, of a number of these, you know, campaigns and hate campaigns. How, how do you, ma- I can't imagine the stress that you're under. How, how do you manage that? I do still have a very supportive community. I do have a number of community members who do show up and support in different ways. But I also have to recognize, too, that this isn't just my story. I've got a board member in a sister district who gets death threats fairly regularly. 
Uh, we also have a board member out of Litchfield, Dr. Armstead, who actually has a fellow board member who is working with the community to organize against her. And they've seen an uptick in like the Aryan Nation coming into the community to target and harass Black families since she has been made the target by this board member and these special groups that don't want critical race theory. Um, she's being labeled as the Black Lives Matter terrorist. This is something that is a trend that is happening with Black women in politics. Arizona has 13 Black board members currently, and all of us have had to face harassment and threats and have been heavily scrutinized in comparison to our white board members. And our safety here is compromised in doing the work that we do. Well, we're unfortunately running out of time, but I do want to ask you, do you think the great weight of this should have to fall on the shoulders of a school board member or a teacher? I do not. I think that school boards in Arizona, we do not get paid to do this task, first of all, right? And there's a heavy weight that's been placed upon us throughout this pandemic. And with this whole argument of critical race theory, we also have our teachers who are feeling under attack and have already been like targeted in our district and nationally as well. We've seen a teacher get fired recently for assigning a Ta-Nehisi Coates poem. And, and that's very fearful for our teachers and our boards. And we're trying to reconcile how to deal with this and how to still perform equity in these very divided communities. Uh, we are worried that this narrative is taking over and we need more parents we need more community members to show up and counter these narratives because it's so important. Well, I want to squeeze in one quick question. Uh, where is the mayor? Where is the governor? Are they helping you in any way? No, our, our mayor and governor are very conservative, particularly our governor who has championed a lot of these anti-critical race theory laws and these anti-masks ordinances that have just come into play. And so our governor he does seem to be pandering to a certain demographic and he's not listening to the community at large or helping school board members to make our job easier. Well, uh, you certainly have taken on this very tough task uh, and you've done it nobly and courageously. So we commend you certainly for what you do. And we are particularly grateful that you shared your wisdom and experiences with us here on State of Play. Thank you. Welcome back to State of Play, where Karen and I continue to drill down on the important topic, the culture wars. We have with us someone who's given a lot of thought and a lot of energy to this topic, Jennifer Berkshire. Uh, she is an adjunct professor uh, at Boston College, a writer with The Nation, The New Republic, the host of a podcast, Have You Heard?, and co-author of a book, Woof at the Schoolhouse Door, Wonderful to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. So you have put a lot of time and energy on this important topic. What was your inspiration? What prompted you to become so engaged with this topic? Some would say I'm obsessed. In fact, we have a rule at my house that I'm not allowed to talk about this stuff before eight in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I spent a number of years editing a statewide newspaper for the teachers union in Massachusetts. And I didn't really know anything about public education other than that I'd gone through a lot of it. And I started visiting urban schools. And I was especially interested in places where it seemed like parents and communities had big demands for what they wanted. And yet what was being offered to them 
them was what was much smaller, right? Like here, we're going to try this thing that's going to make test scores go up or here you can have some charter schools. And I just I sense that this was going to cause a lot of friction and I really wanted to know more. What about these culture wars, though? I mean, you know why you looked at the big picture of who are the for what are the forces? Who are the players behind this resistance to hard history or some call critical race theory. As I started going around and talking to teachers who found themselves on the receiving end of, of a new generation of parent complaints, what I could see was that this was basically a continuation of the 2020 election, that basically you have communities that are intensely divided and parents perceive teachers who are, say, teaching about the electoral college or introducing the fact that we have a new vice president, that those teachers are anti-Trump. And so they're coming to the school, they're going to the school board, and they're complaining that the teachers are politicizing the curriculum. What we're really seeing is a very dangerous moment where public education as an institution is in jeopardy because of this intense level of polarization. So who and what is the money behind all of this? There are a lot of people who are trying to follow the money. A lot of these donors keep their identities secret as we're so used to now. But what we are starting to see is that the money is going to some very familiar destinations. It's going to an array of conservative institutions, the Manhattan Institute, the Heritage Foundation, groups that have really been at the throes of a particular kind of culture war uh, for a long time and have often taken in very hard edge positions on race-related issues, on things like welfare and crime. We're seeing sort of the mask be dropped after many years where I think people have come to see uh, an education reform movement as bipartisan. And now suddenly we're realizing, wow, these organizations had a very different destination in mind. And how does the media, especially the more conservative media, how are they playing a role in this? Well, they are fanning the flames day after day. They have discovered that any story with uh, critical race theory in it is guaranteed to get clicks and eyeballs. And I think the thing that's so alarming is watching how at the very local level that parents understand that if they show up at a school board meeting, that there's a chance that they'll get on Tucker. You'll hear them talking about that. And then that footage gets replayed. What really concerns me going into the next school year is that you're going to see this kind of outrage ready machine firing up over and over again. Anytime, say, a teacher gets hauled before a disciplinary review board in New Hampshire because they've been accused of, of teaching something that violates that state's new ban on divisive concepts, that's going to get press coverage. And ultimately, it what it does is it, it paints a picture of our schools as indoctrination camps, and it sends a strong message to parents. This isn't a place where where you want your kids to be. Is it a fear of diversity? Is that what they're concerned about? Or is it a different agenda that we just don't fully grasp? 
So I think there are a lot of things going on here. One thing that you really notice is that the communities where these wars are at their most intense are communities that are quickly changing. They're communities that are rapidly diversifying. And you will often have the policies that were originally enacted being enacted in response to an increasingly diverse student body, to students coming forward and saying, you're not preparing us for the real world, or this school is punishing students in a way that's racially disparate. So you have now white parents who, some of whom worry very much about their own kids' futures at a time of great inequality. They've totally bought into the idea that the only way their student can win is if somebody else can lose. And then you have an ecosystem of organizations and deep-pocketed funders who really see this as an opportunity to go after public education as an institution. So if you go after public education as an institution, what kind of outcome do you have? We already have major inequality in America. How do you prepare America for the 21st century without it? What's so interesting is that you do not hear any kind of language like that as they make the case for this increasingly extreme vision. For the last 30 years, we've reshaped our schools and our expectations about what a school does in accordance to really what the business community wanted. Now the whole discourse is changing and it's all about what does an individual parent want for an individual child? The, the buzzword that you so often hear is fund students, not systems. Think about that. If we talked about that in terms of our transportation system, and I said, fund me as a commuter, not the transportation system, you would immediately know that I was bonkers. And yet somehow this has emerged into a, a policy that states are actually considering. And the critical race theory flap is meant to build support for that. Well, uh, that's a pretty disheartening uh, scenario you outlined. Uh, at the end of the day, we're almost out of time. Who's going to win this fight? I mean, they seem pretty organized, the people who are opposed to critical race theory as against the others. My hope is that we see students and teachers band together and that this effort to essentially blow up our schools ends the way they so often do. People in the United States are really loath to abandon public education. Let's hope that this intense fury dies down, people start to see real sense, and we start to have the hard conversations that we so need to have. Well, we're just very grateful that you're right there to give us the big picture. We really desperately needed that. And thank you for sharing it with us here on State of Play. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to State of Play. As you know, our topic today, the culture wars in America. And with us now is one of the most significant thought leaders in this space, Becky Pringle. She's the president, CEO of NEA, the National Education Association, the largest union in America. What an honor to have you with us. It is an honor to join you, Mayor Pratt. So, you have been, uh, you by training are a science teacher, am I correct? That is correct, over 30 years. And your father was a teacher, is that correct? He sure was, he was a history teacher. So I gather that, you know, this has always been a family passion, education, is that, uh, that, is that how you came to this space today? Uh, it certainly is, there's no question uh, the value that my family put on and taught me inspired me uh, to pursue 
teaching as a profession. Though my father did not really want me to come, become a teacher. Can I just say that even though he was a teacher? Oh, really? Uh, he, yeah, he, he, I, I uh, love science. And he thought that I would choose a less traditional career for a woman. He was a little disappointed that I was following him into teaching. He had already seen the lack of respect for the profession and um, didn't think that I would have the kind of impact that he saw his, his little girl having when I was elected as an officer of NEA. He said to me, Rebecca, I was wrong. Uh, that's what he called me when it's really mad or very serious. He said, Rebecca, I was wrong. You have the opportunity to imp have impact far beyond the confines of your classroom. And I expect a lot of you now. <laughs> huh, well, that was a, a huge point. That's the great thing. <laughs> <laughs> so how is it that you got involved with NEA? I mean, from the classroom to NEA? Well, I have always been a racial and social justice activist from the time I was in high school through college. And when I made the decision to become a teacher uh, and started teaching, I saw the disparities, particularly in my own field in science. And I partnered actually with the superintendent at the time to take on the gaps that I saw in black students specifically pursuing careers in math and science. And we started a program together called the Math Science Challenge, where we challenged our students to pursue those careers. And what we realized very quickly is that there were gaps in our Black students being identified to take those higher level math, science, math and science courses, go into AP, all of that exposed those inequities. And so I started working with him to do that. And I realized I needed to do more. And I went to my union and said, this is something we should be taking on. This is not okay. And the union leader at the time said, Becky, you have a really big mouth. You need to be involved in the union. And you can, <laughs> if that's what your passion is around racial equity, and uh, then we'll form a committee and you can be in charge. And that began my, my journey uh, through leadership at my local level all the way up to being a national president now. So when you came into this position with all of the challenges that we face today, particularly moving towards society of, of, of uh, biotechnology, I should say, uh, and preparing our workforce for that, did you in anticipate that you'd be in the middle of a culture war? <laughs> you know, I, well, I wouldn't say I anticipated it, but as I said, my dad was a, science, was a history teacher and he taught his students at home that if you don't learn history, if you don't know your history, that you can both be proud of, but also find your place uh, in society in making better, uh, then you will not do what you have been called to do as just a human in, in our society. And so... One of the things he taught me is that when society makes progress, there's always pushback, always. And you need to be ready for that. You need to always ground yourself in your values and what you want for your students and what you want for this society. And you, you need to continuously say what you need and want for our students to actually become those leaders of a just society. So I'm not surprised, um, always disappointed, but not surprised. So I've seen you speak and you're a very compelling speaker uh, and no disrespect to Derek Bell because he was a brilliant man. But do you find yourself having a greater struggle because they define it as critical race theory as against just honest presentation of American history? I don't struggle with talking about uh, the 
the importance of teaching our students the truth, that we have to be honest about the times when this country has lived up to its highest aspirations and the times when we've fallen short. It's only when we allow our students to wrestle with those wicked problems and trust them that they are able to do that. And of course, as an educator, we're, gonna, we're always gonna think about what's age appropriate. You know, Mayor, my, my grandson moved in with me at the beginning of the pandemic. And when he asked me about where our folks came from, you know, I was really glad that my dad had done the research to find out where his grandfather had been enslaved, my great-grandfather. And I was able to talk to my grandson about that. I mean, he asked difficult questions, no question. But I know in being honest with him about that, that I am helping him to develop and all students develop the critical thinking skills, those problem-solving skills, because they are the ones that are going to, to, to help us become that more perfect union, but they cannot do that if we're not honest with them. And we have to be honest. Well, you're a powerful union, NEA, but you've got a lot of powerful forces working against uh, any notion of critical race theory or hard history. Shouldn't there be others in this fight with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, we, we at the NEA know that we cannot do this alone. Educators can't do this alone. If we've learned nothing this year in this pandemic is to educate a child, it takes all of us. It takes the whole community. So we have to, we have to take that on uh, from that holistic place. And we have to be, we have to be ready to stand up and fight for our educators, to fight with our parents and community members. But it's gonna take all of us. And what I've learned, what we've all learned over this year is when we all come together and we set our minds to doing something, we can we can make it happen. We can get it done. Because at the end of the day, we all want what's best for our kids. We all want them to be happy and healthy and have the opportunity to pursue happiness. All of them. You know, that poetry mayor in the in the Constitu US Constitution, that's a, it's poetry. We the people, we the people, that's all of us, every single one of us. For that to happen, we have to acknowledge the inequities that are built into the system and then develop those skills so that we can we can talk about our shared experiences and our shared stories and we can take on that challenge and become that more perfect union. Are you are there uh, campaigns that NEA is uh, advancing to help teachers because a lot of teachers are getting death threats being threatened uh, in terms of their jobs are there day-to-day -day exercises with which you're involved? Absolutely. Um, you know, at the core of everything for me is education, and that includes our, our own educators. So making sure that they have what they need, they have the knowledge, skills, and ability to do the jobs they love. Um, and so that involves training them, making sure that they have those skills and tools to be the activists. We need them to be. One of the things I learned, Mayor, what was happening in classrooms down the hallway from me and across the country from me, I, I needed to care about those kids too. I need to care about those educators as well. And I and, and that's what we're teaching our, our, our educators now, our young ones, our aspiring educators, that they have to be activists. Everything, every single thing that happens in our classroom, every decision that's made is a political one. So they have to be actively involved from the school board to the White House, making sure that people who are making decisions are making the decisions that are best for our students. And if they're not, 
you know what this country is going to see? They're going to see educators run for those who are, are under that heat, that threat, men and women who have dedicated their lives to educating America's students being threatened by politicians and pundits. Are you kidding me? But we, the NEA, are not only um, making sure that they are safe and we are defending them and we are giving them the information they, they need so that they can continue to do the jobs they love, teaching our children. Well, you are a wonderful exemplar, so we thank you for what you do, but we especially thank you for being here with us here on State of Play. Thank you, it's so good to be with you. Welcome back to State of Play where Karen and I have had an intense and animated conversation around the culture wars. But also quite busy has been the Reverend Mark Thompson, who's been in the thick of it around two topics we've explored here, voting rights and D.C. statehood. Wonderful to talk with you up close and personal, Mark. Well, glad to be here. Sorry, I have been a host in absentia, uh, but uh, glad to be in the streets. And, you know, Mayor, you... You recruited me to organize in the streets when you were mayor uh, around D.C. statehood, uh, and I'm still doing it. Haven't stopped. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to live to see it happen. I think it will. I know Karen has been really eager to ask you some questions, especially around voting rights. Yeah, Mark. So the news doesn't sound very good about a uh, federal voting rights act. What are you hearing? Well, it, it is troubling. It, it doesn't sound good. Um, I've actually, since I've been on the road, part of my road, uh, part of my road trips have been to go to West Virginia twice in a month, first with Reverend Barber, um, and then with the Freedom Ride uh, organized by Black Voters Matter. Um, Manchin has been the key. And actually, the compromise he put out there was okay, but it still stopped very short of some very important things that are necessary. And obviously, we see that went absolutely uh, nowhere. It was meaningful to be on those Freedom Rides, the commemoration of the, the Freedom Rides in 1961, and even moving to be on the Freedom Ride bus when Kristen Clark, uh, a friend of ours, someone we know from Lawyers Committee, announced uh, that they this, the Justice Department is going to sue the state of Georgia. When we got to West Virginia, there were West Virginians um, who were standing with us, many white West Virginians, in fact. Um, the good news is there is that DOJ suit. There is action taking in place in the states. Um, we saw what the Democrats did in Texas, which really needs to be the mentality of all Democrats, because black voters are concerned that the Democrats aren't doing enough. After all, Manchin and Cinema are Democrats. So, you know, it's hard to explain to people, well, who's really stopping this? Is it Republicans or is it Democrats? And people are seeing Manchin and Cinema as the poster senators um, for obstruction. Um, in that process, it was also very meaningful. Um, and this doesn't happen often. D.C. statehood tends to be too localized. And so when we traveled, Karen, we were able to really encourage and mobilize people around the issue and link it to the overall issue of voter suppression. And I can commend Black Voters Matter for including that. But I think um, Black voters, if we're coming up on 2022 midterms, um, and what have you, uh, trying to hold the House, trying to hold the Senate, Black voters need to be motivated. And Democrats are the only ones that can do that. Well, what about cinema in particular, Mark? I mean, uh, wh why so much pressure on Manchin, whose constituent base is uh, a lot more white than cinema that has a more diverse constituent base? It seems as if cinema is not even reading the polling of the changing demographics of her state. In fact, the numbers show that the demographics have shifted even more 
since she won her election, hence Mark Kelly. And I think we're going to have a, a Democrat actually to primary her. I think that's what's coming around the pike. So she really ought to wake up and smell the coffee herself. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, uh, it is very frustrating for people to hide behind, so I would say, uh, a rule, not a, a law, called the filibuster at the expense of people's voting rights. When people stood in line in the middle of a pandemic to vote, that to allow those Democrats to be a majority. But we're proud of you, Mark, and thank you for updating us here on State of Play. Happy to do it. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.